Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. On today's show, from fighting housing displacement to police abuse to raging against the war machine, people are raising their voices and their fists against the forces of exploitation. And the fact that the Bowser administration and Chief Newsham thought they could get away with ignoring the will of the D.C. voters, the will of the council, and the law of the District of Columbia should be of serious concern to all district residents. And scientists make a shocking discovery in the Arctic Ocean, where before the ocean floor was solid ice, it is now giving way to methane boiling up from the deep. Every new fossil fuel project that and delay in transitioning to clean energy really brings us a step closer to reaching these climate tipping points, where it may become literally impossible to stop the planet from warming out of control. These stories, voices, and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. We have one of those old-fashioned jam-packed shows for you today, formatted a little different, lots of stories, but no headlines today. Now, the journalists at Consortium News here in the DMV, founded by the late Robert Perry, are certainly unbought and unbossed. One CN contributor, former CIA officer turned peace activist Ray McGovern, has joined on the ground in the past, and we expect editor Joe Loria in the hot seat next week. But I want to start this week's show a little differently with a little taste from that website, which is presenting a truthful and sane perspective on the polarizing civil war building over the impeachment inquiry for Donald Trump. Andrew Basevich writes in Consortium News this week, The effort to boot the president from office is certain to yield a memorable spectacle. The rancor and contempt that have clogged American politics like a backed-up sewer since the day of Trump's election will now find release. Watergate will pale by comparison. The uproar triggered by Bill Clinton's quote-unquote sexual relations will be nothing by comparison. A de facto collaboration between Trump, those who despise him, and those who despise his critics all but guarantees that this story will dominate the news undoubtedly for months to come. As this process unspools, what politicians like to call, quote unquote, the people's business will essentially go unattended. So while Congress considers whether or not to remove Trump from office, gun control legislation will languish, the deterioration of the nation's infrastructure will proceed apace, needed health care reforms will be tabled, the military industrial complex will waste yet more billions, and the national debt already at $22 trillion, larger, that is, than the entire economy, will continue to surge. The looming threat posed by climate change, much talked about of late, will proceed all but unchecked. For those of us preoccupied with America's role in the world, the obsolete assumptions and habits undergirding what's still called quote-unquote national security will continue to evade examination. Our endless wars will remain endless and pointless. Holding promised security assistance hostage 
unless a foreign leader agrees to do you political favors is obviously and indisputably wrong. Trump's antics regarding Ukraine may even meet some definition of criminal. Still, how does such misconduct compare to the calamities engineered by the centrists who preceded him? Consider in particular the George W. Bush administration's decision to invade Iraq in 2003, along with the spin-off wars that followed. Consider, too, the reckless economic policies that produced the Great Recession of 2007 to 2008. As measured by the harm inflicted on the American people and others, the offenses for which Trump is being impeached qualify as mere misdemeanors. Honest people may differ on whether to attribute the Iraq war to outright lies or monumental hubris. When it comes to tallying up the consequences, however, the intentions of those who sold the war don't particularly matter. The results include thousands of Americans killed, tens of thousands wounded, many grievously or left to struggle with the effects of PTSD, hundreds of thousands of non-Americans killed or injured, millions displaced, trillions of dollars expended. Radical groups like ISIS empowered and in its case even formed inside a U.S. prison in Iraq and the Persian Gulf region plunged into turmoil from which it has yet to recover. How do Trump's crimes stack up against these? The Great Recession stemmed directly from economic policies implemented during the administration of President Bill Clinton and continued by his successor. Deregulating the banking sector was projected to produce a bonanza in which all would share. Yet as a direct result of the ensuing chicanery, nearly 9 million Americans lost their jobs, while overall unemployment shot up to 10%. Roughly 4 million Americans lost their homes to foreclosure. The stock market cratered and millions saw their life savings evaporate. Again, the question must be asked, how do these results compare to Trump's dubious dealings with Ukraine? Trump's critics speak with one voice in demanding accountability. Yet virtually no one has been held accountable for the pain, suffering, and loss inflicted by the architects of the Iraq War and the Great Recession. Why is that? As another presidential election approaches, the question not only goes unanswered, but unasked. To win re-election, Trump, a corrupt con man who jumped ship on his own bankrupt casinos, money in hand, leaving others holding the bag, will cheat and lie. Yet in the politics of the last half century, these do not qualify as novelties. Indeed, apart from being the son of a sitting U.S. vice president, what made Hunter Biden worth 50 grand per month to a gas company owned by a Ukrainian oligarch? I'm curious. That the president and his associates are engaging in a cover-up is doubtless the case, yet another cover-up proceeds in broad daylight on a vastly larger scale. Quote, Trump's shambolic presidency somehow seems less unsavory, Moyne writes, when considering the fact that his critics refuse to admit how massively his election signified the failure of their policies from endless war to economic inequality. End quote. Just so. What are the real crimes? Who are the real criminals? No matter what happens in the coming months, don't expect the Trump impeachment proceedings to come within a country mile of addressing such questions. And those again are the words of Andrew Basevich, writing in Consortium News, or rather the article originally published in Tom Dispatch, reposted in Consortium News. 
Now, on one subject, there is no brewing civil war between Republicans and Democrats in D.C., and that is the subject of war. Just as you could call both parties the corporate party, you can also call both parties the war party. To drive home that point, anti-war activists are converging on D.C. Friday, October 11th and Saturday, October 12th. Earlier, I spoke to a well-known organizer for the group March on the Pentagon. I'm here with anti-war activist Cindy Sheehan, organizer for this weekend of outrage happening in D.C. And it's starting today, Friday at 11 a.m. as we go to broadcast with a rally in March, Rage Against the War Machine. Welcome to On the Ground, Cindy. Oh, thank you so much, Esther. It's nice to talk to you. So I know that you're starting at the White House, but you're actually going to march and rage at different locations around D.C. that you've identified as part of the war machine. So tell us about today's action. Okay, so like you said, we're meeting at the White House at 11. We're going, uh, there we're going to rage against Donald Trump and the Republican Party. And then after the White House, we're going to march to the IMF, where we're going to rage against banksters and sanctions. And we'll be in solidarity with the recent protests in um, Ecuador against the IMF for sure. And so these places that we're going just represent different facets of the war machine. We certainly couldn't go to every place in D.C. that is associated with the war machine because it would take us like 100 years to do that. So the next place we're going after the IMF is Farragut Square, where we're going to rage against the Democratic Party because we feel like the Democrats and the Republicans are equally responsible. If not, the Democrats might even be worse than the Republicans and imperialism and these wars for profit. And after we go to Farragut Square and rage against the Democrats, we're going to the Atlantic Council where we will rage against think tanks. Think tanks, as you probably know, are funded by the war machine. They're they're funded by uh, war profiteers. They're funded by oil and gas. And they come out, people think they're benign. And, you know, when they come out with policy, they think that it, people may think that it's totally non-biased or whatever. But, of course, it's always biased towards foreign policy that is uh, vicious, uh, uh, you know, i.e. the United States foreign policy. And then when we're finished raging against uh, think tanks at the Atlantic Council, we're going down the street to rage against war profiteers at Booz. Alan Hamilton, and they are just solely a defense contractor. And that was where Edward Snowden right. was working when he leaked uh, the documents or gave the documents to uh, Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras. And so we're going to end up at the Washington Post where we're going to rage against corporate media and the exploitation of labor. Uh, You know, as uh, we know, Jeff Bezos, or Bezos, I don't know how to say his name, he owns the Washington Post. He has over $100 billion in wealth, and he pays his uh, workers very low wages. He cuts back benefits or cuts off benefits for workers. The workers, and I'm not so much talking about the Washington Post. We're there for different reasons. We're there because they're the um, propaganda arm of the military-industrial complex here in Washington, D.C. And they, of course, 
always support the war machine and they support the Democrats, especially the Democrat part of the war machine, for sure. And, of course, Amazon that Jeff Bezos owns is uh, um, they maintain the cloud for the CIA. So they're also involved in the deep state. So but. All these places just represent, like the Washington Post represents corporate media as a whole, just singling out these places because many of them seem particularly egregious, but also because they're, you know, they're, it's a 1.8 mile route. So it's not, you know, it's not that bad of a route. And, you know, it, we're just really unfortunate or fortunate that these places are um, on this route for us to uh, rage against. And at the Washington Post, we'll be doing acts of civil uh, resistance, perhaps risking arrest. So I also know that the larger theme is kind of an anti-imperialism conference, which will be on Saturday. And imperialism is a good point to bring up because both parties, when it comes to imperialism, our adventures abroad, these wars, um, our, the way our corporations engage in kind of international like exploitation of people, there's not much disagreement over that. <laughs> right now, there is a civil war breaking out over this issues of impeachment. But you find that when it comes to war and invasion and exploitation of people around the globe, both parties are right on board with each other. So, Well, absolutely. That's why we are raging against the Republicans one place and the Democrats in another place, because we can't just be anti-war. We have to be anti-imperialist and we just can't be anti-republican war we have to be principled and we have to make these demands based on our principles not the principles of the capitalists and imperialists and so if people want to get involved today on friday as we go to broadcast they should come down to the white house at 11 a.m and then you'll be marching and rallying from there on Saturday, if people want to get involved in the anti-imperialist conference, what do they do? They can come to St. Stephen's Church on 1525 Newton Street, Northwest. And it starts at 1130 and it goes till 9 o'clock. We have four different panels and we're going to have some music. And um, I'm giving a keynote speech on this 18-year-long war in Afghanistan that the United States is still engaged in. And I just want to say about the March and the Summit, they will be live streamed at our, from our Facebook page, March on the Pentagon. So if maybe if people can't join until maybe 12, they can, they can look and see where we are at the time. You know, they, they can catch up with us wherever we are. The, the March will probably be from 11 to 1. And then we'll be at the Washington Post doing, you know, the, the civil resistance. We'll be longer at the Post. We're going to have um, anybody who wants to speak out at the Post can speak out at the Post. So we'll be doing acts of civil resistance and having um, speak outs there. So uh, we'll probably be there till at least two. You know, unless we get arrested, then we don't know where we're going <laughs> to end up. All right. So again, if folks are just tuning in, we're talking to Cindy Sheehan, organizer for this weekend's Rage Against the War Machine. And if folks want to connect with everything happening, I know you're on Facebook under the event Rage Against the War Machine and also the anti-imperialist meeting. Also, I think that your your website might be like March on the Pentagon. It's MarchOnPentagon.com. 
MarchOnPentagon.com. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Cindy. Oh, thank you so much, Esther. On the ground, on the ground show.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And for more international news, I'm joined by Professor Gerald Horn, our geopolitical analyst. And Gerald, we're going to start with this bombardment by Turkey into Syria targeting the Kurds. What's the latest? Yes, this has been a very dramatic development. That is to say, this Turkish incursion into Syria. President Erdogan has said and has suggested that he would like to send the three to four million Syrian refugees now in Turkey across the border into Syria and resettle them there, which in many ways would, would, would redraw the demographic map of Syria with consequences that are difficult, as I speak, to divine. 
President Erdogan is under fire at home. There have been a number of defectors from the so-called AK party who plan to challenge him in upcoming elections. He has yet to recover from the failed coup of 2016 and has retaliated against perceived dissidents and antagonists by engaging in a sweeping and systematic purge of the judiciary, of universities, of the press. And it's also unclear as to how this incursion into Syria will impact his relationship with both Iran and Russia. I'm sure many in the audience have seen those pictures of Mr. Erdogan in between President Rouhani of Iran and President Putin of Russia, signifying their close relationship. On the other hand, he's expected in Washington within weeks, and it will be very interesting to see what comes out of that particular meeting with the 45th U.S. president. It's also striking to observe how this incursion into Syria has split, or at least revealed fractures in the GOP coalition. That is to say, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina has been unsparing in his criticism of the 45th U.S. president and his decision to announce a withdrawal of U.S. forces from Syria. I should add parenthetically that the corporate media has yet to reveal, at least with any detail, that these U.S. forces in Syria were not invited by the duly constituted government in Damascus, and therefore their presence in Syria is improper and illicit. On the other hand, you have Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky who has backed this announced withdrawal of U.S. forces from Syria and has been unsparing in his criticism of Senator Lindsey Graham. Uh, this bespeaks this widening conflict in the GOP between the hawks led by Senator Graham and those who are crossing the hawks, speaking of the 45th U.S. president in the first instance, who sacked John Bolton, their hawkish national security advisor, refused to bomb Iran despite prodding from the hawks. And I should also say that the Israeli lobby is not very happy with Mr. Trump and his uh, decision to withdraw these forces from Syria. Uh, that is to say that there are those in Israel itself who feel that if Mr. Trump turns his back on the Kurds, Perhaps he will turn his back on the Israelis as well in their time of need, assuming that it does arise. I should also say that the Saudis have apparently gotten that message as well, because the scuttlebutt is that they're looking to open talks of some sort with the Iranians, perceiving that the U.S. may be unreliable. In any case, it's unclear where this crisis will turn, although what is clear is that there is quite a bit of bloodshed that is taking place in Syria as we speak. Well, what do you think of the analysis that really this is just, uh, in a sense, a land grab by Turkey, that they are pushing 20-odd miles into Syria from their border? and that they are basically uh, taking land away from Syria. Uh, you, you mentioned that the U.S. is there 
not by invitation by Syria and that it's a, an illegal occupation. And similarly, uh, there's no mention in the corporate media that this is an illegal incursion into Syria, which has not attacked Turkey. Well, I think this analysis that suggests that this is a blatant land grab by Turkey is a worthwhile way of looking at what's going on. I think it's also fair to suggest that Mr. Erdogan is also threatening Western Europe that if they do not pipe down with regard to their stinging criticism of this invasion of Syria, that he will help to engineer the inflow of more refugees into Western Europe itself, which you may recall in the last few years has helped to give rise to a decided right-wing populist strain that does not seem to be receding at all. On the other hand, it seems to me that Mr. Erdogan should be subjected to stinging criticism because recall that it was not so long ago, that is to say before the so-called Arab Spring of 2011 that gave rise to this massive unrest in Syria, that Mr. Erdogan and the leader of Syria, uh, President al-Assad, were actually quite close. And Mr. Erdogan decided to turn against Mr. al-Assad and that has not worked out very well for Turkey or for Mr. Erdogan personally. Well, next I want to turn to China. The latest part of the dispute between the United States and China has to do with the NBA. And it started with comments from management at the Houston Rockets uh, supporting the protesters in Hong Kong. And then it's wound its way to the NBA getting involved and weighing in. And it just seems that this is totally tied to the fact that people in the United States don't understand why China would be upset at their comments about Hong Kong. Well, you may recall that I lived in Hong Kong some years ago mm -hmm. and, and taught at the University of Hong Kong and, in fact, wrote a book about World War II where Hong Kong is the centerpiece. So I'm quite familiar with this issue. I should also say that there has not been sufficient attention in the U.S. press about U.S. interference in Hong Kong in terms of sponsoring certain kinds of protests the so-called National Endowment for Democracy, uh, not to mention the kinds of vigilante actions that have so outraged people on the mainland, that is to say vigilante actions by the protesters. But the latest flap, the latest controversy in terms of these uh, comments or this tweet since deleted by the Houston Rockets general manager, Mr. Mori, uh, has stoked uh, quite a rift between the National Basketball Association on the one hand and the Chinese regime on the other. Uh, billions are at stake. Uh, can we keep in mind that basketball fans might recall Stefan Marbury, who was once a star point guard for the New York Knicks and has not been on the scene in the United States in recent years because he's made quite a life and career and a fortune for himself in China. Uh, likewise, Kobe Bryant, the recently retired Los Angeles Lakers star, has made quite a fortune for himself in China. It appears that what's going to happen is that there will be a split between the NBA and the People's Republic of China. Billions are at stake, and 
I foresee that this will reduce the revenue of the National Basketball Association, which in turn will reduce the size of contracts that have recently become astronomical going to basketball stars, which could lead to a strike as the players seek to reclaim a larger share of a shrinking revenue pot. I should also say that Mr. Mori violated the basic rules of capitalism. He's basically a hired hand and was rebuked by the owner of the Houston Rockets, Tillman Fertitta, for this deleted uh, tweet uh, that supported the protest in Hong Kong. As a hired hand, uh, he should have recognized that if he is going to seek to alter the strategic trajectory of the National Basketball Association, he probably should have consulted with those higher up in terms of the food chain, higher up in terms of the uh, who's getting the profits. But this flap with China, it seems to me, is symptomatic of a larger issue. That is to say, the conflict between the United States and China, which does not seem to be easing up at all. The fact that on October 1st, just a few days ago, on the 70th anniversary of the coming to power of the Communist Party of China, you probably had perhaps the most significant and dramatic display of weapons at one time, at one site, in human history. But more than that, marching alongside Chinese troops in Beijing on October 1st, were not only troops from Mexico, but troops from Cuba as well. And I'm sure that that raised an eyebrow in Washington, and it seems to me that's indicative of the kind of pressure that China is placing on Washington, which of course is in the throes of this impeachment crisis, and is hardly able to focus on this wider issue of China and its challenge to U.S. imperialism. And so finally, we're going to switch to another continent and talk about what's new or in the news in Southern Africa. Well, the good news is that South Africa and Nigeria have kissed and made up. Recall that a few weeks ago, there were these xenophobic riots in Johannesburg where Nigerian exiles were attacked by South Africans mostly on spurious grounds, needless to say. Yet, I think that the recent meeting in South Africa between President Buhari of Nigeria and President Ramaphosa of South Africa sets an example as to how two nations can turn a setback into an advance. Because the upshot of this meeting will be closer ties between the number one economy in Africa, speaking of Nigeria, the number two economy, speaking of South Africa. Uh, for example, uh, the governments will now be issuing visas that can extend for 10 years, which basically portends a further integration of these two major economies. Uh, on the other hand, the news from Zimbabwe is rather mixed. On the one hand, you see that the neighbors of Zimbabwe and the Southern African Development Community are hotly opposed to the sanctions 
that have been imposed on that Southern African country for a number of years. And in fact, October 25th is slated as anti-sanctions day, where the neighbors of South Africa will be lobbying intensely against these sanctions that are really hamstringing the Zimbabwean economy. Well, I know I can depend on you to keep watch on all those stories, especially what's happening in Southern Africa. I've been joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. I know you have to go, so thanks for joining the show today, Gerald. Well, thank you. So, we must ask ourselves, what is the dictionary definition of terrorism? The systematic use of terror especially as a means of coercion. But what is terror? According to the dictionary I hold in my hand, terror is violent or destructive acts, such as bombing, committed by groups in order to intimidate a population or government into granting their demands. So what's a terrorist? They're calling me a terrorist Like they don't know who the terrorist When they put it on me, I tell them this I'm all about peace and love But they're calling me a terrorist Like they don't know who the terrorist Insulting my intelligence Oh, how these people judge It seems like the ragheads and khakis are worrying your dad But your dad's favorite food is curry and kebab it's funny but it's sad how they make your mommy hurry with her bags Rather read the sun and study all the facts Tell me, what's the bigger threat to human society? BAE systems or homemade IEDs Remote control drones killing off human lives Or man with homemade bomb committing suicide I know you were terrified when you saw the towers fall It's all terror but some forms are more powerful It seems nuts, how could there be such agony When more Israelis die from peanut allergies It's like the definition didn't ever exist I guess it's all just dependent who your nemesis is Irrelevant how eloquent the rhetoric peddler is They're telling fibs now, tell us who the terrorist they is They're calling me a terrorist Like they don't know who the terrorist When they put it on me, I tell them this I'm all about peace and love But they're calling me a terrorist Like they don't know who the terrorist Insulting my intelligence Oh, how these people judge was democracy, Mossadegh was democracy, Allende was democracy, hypocrisy, it bothers me, call you terrorists if you don't want to be a colony, refuse to bow down to a policy of robbery, is terrorism my lyrics, when more Vietnam vets killed themselves after the war than died in it, this is very basic, one nation in the world has over a thousand military bases, they say it's religion, when clearly it isn't, it's not just Muslims that oppose your imperialism, is Hugo Chavez a Muslim, nah, I didn't think so, it's Castro a Muslim? Nah, I didn't think so It's like the definition didn't ever exist I guess it's all just dependent who your nemesis is Irrelevant how eloquent the rhetoric peddler is They're telling fibs now, tell us who the terrorist is They're calling me a terrorist Like they don't know who the terrorist When they put it on me, I tell them this I'm all about peace and love They're calling me a terrorist Like they don't know who the terrorist Insulting my intelligence Oh, how these people judge If it 
conscious, the conscious with terrorism. Phosphorus that burns hands, that is terrorism. Erdogan and Stern gang, that was terrorism. What they did in Hiroshima was terrorism. What they did in Fallujah was terrorism. Mandela ANC, that was terrorism. Jerry Adams IRA, that was terrorism. Every Prince Black Water was terrorism. Oklahoma McVeigh, that was terrorism. Every day USA, that is terrorism. Every day UK, that is terrorism. On October 2nd, the ACLU, in partnership with Black Lives Matter DC and the Stop Police Terror Project, were able to announce a victory in the fight against discriminatory over-policing in the district. They agreed to dismiss Black Lives Matter DC versus Bowser upon the release of Stop and Frisk data by MPD. This week, we spoke with Scott Michaelman, legal co-director of the ACLU DC and lead counsel in Black Lives Matter DC versus Bowser. On the trends beginning to emerge from the data, the significance of this victory, and how we can continue to hold police accountable for violence. Two aspects of this lawsuit. The first is whether MPD was complying with the law, whether they were interested in complying with the law, whether they were taking seriously their obligations to comply with the law. And on that score, MPD's record is atrocious. They waited more than three years after the passage of the NEAR Act data collection requirement to begin to comply with the law. And they only did that after we sued them and won an injunction requiring them to comply within four weeks. And then suddenly, for the first time, they overhauled their data system in uh, just this summer. So from the standpoint of accountability, the rule of law, transparency, MPD has a ton of work to do. And the fact that uh, the Bowser administration and Chief Newsham thought they could get away with ignoring the will of the D.C. voters, the will of the council, and the law of the District of Columbia should be of serious concern to all district residents. And it's made all that more troubling by the fact we know why they don't like this law. They don't want the data collected because they are worried that the data will show there are significant racial disparities in who gets stopped in the District of Columbia, and that is what the preliminary data have shown. Mm -hmm. Now, separately from that, there's the question of what our lawsuit achieved. And the lawsuit has been a victory. The lawsuit won, although it took some time, we won a Superior Court injunction requiring them to collect the data within four weeks, and two weeks after we won that order, they uh, implemented a complete overhaul of their data collection process, which brought them finally into compliance with the NEAR Act. And we did not, we were very suspicious of them at, at first and insisted that they provide preliminary data to show what they had collected and that they were in compliance. We were pleased that they agreed to do that and we were we were also satisfied that data is actually now being collected, finally. So, and that's why we agreed to dismiss the lawsuit, because we, we won what we sought to win. All we wanted from this lawsuit was for them to comply with the law. 
which they're finally doing. That does not excuse their three-year campaign of gamesmanship, delay, obstruction, obfuscation, and outright defiance of the law of the District of Columbia. Because we, we won what we sought to win. All we wanted from this lawsuit was for them to comply with the law, which they're finally doing. That does not excuse their three-year campaign of gamesmanship, delay, obstruction, obfuscation, and outright defiance of the law of the District of Columbia. Primarily looking forward, the, we want them to abide by the commitment that they made as part of their data release this summer to publish, uh, not just to us, but, but on their website, on a semi-annual basis, the near-act stop data that they collect. Uh, they have said that they would do that. They have committed to it both in their, uh, in their report released on September 9th and also now in a court filing. So we have some hope that they may have turned a corner on this, finally having had their noncompliance chastised by a court, are now in a position where they may be taking their obligations more seriously. That said, we're going to be uh, watching that data like a hawk. We are going to be continuing to look for it and analyzing it to see what it shows. From Northwest DC, this is Chantal James. Supreme Court case to actually make urban renewal a thing that the states can do was actually based on D.C. 1954. Supreme Court case called Berman versus Parker. And in the court case documents that, you know, basically made it okay to do urban renewal, they cite 1950 data. And we're going to read a little bit of that right now to justify why they need to change over D.C. And I'm going to read it really quick, really slowly, so all of us can hear. It's just a small excerpt. The first project undertaken under the Act relates to Project Area B in southwest Washington, D.C. In 1950, the Planning Commission prepared and published a comprehensive plan for the district. Surveys revealed that in Area B, 64.3% of the buildings were beyond repair. 18.4% needed major repairs. Only 17% of the buildings in Southwest were considered satisfactory. 57.8% of the dwellings had outside toilets. 60% had no indoor bathrooms. 29.3% lacked electricity. And 82.2% had no wash basins or laundry tubs. And 
8% had no central heat. In the judgment of the district um, director of health, it is necessary to redevelop Area B, this is a whole swath of Southwest, in the interest of public health. The population of Area B amounted to 5,012 persons, 97.5% were Negroes, black folks. Over 97% were black people. One DC held its Freedom School last Saturday at Thurgood Marshall Academy in Southeast, where Rosemary Ndubuizu gave this historical context for DC's current gentrification struggles. A packed room of community members engaged in workshops and facilitated discussions on the ongoing displacement in DC neighborhoods and what residents can do to assert their rights. Those gathered examined their own experiences with housing inequality and examined opportunities to build power as they envisioned their ideal communities. Organizer Rosemary Ndubuizu explained the impetus behind the Freedom School. Um, when DC we're building on the, uh, we continue the SNCC organizing model, which is believing in grassroots community learning projects. So the Freedom School um, was done by SNCC. And they did it throughout the South to help politicize black folks in the South. So we continue to do the same tradition. And so for us, the freedom schools are important because not only do they bring us together so that we can do our collective dreaming together about what we want to see happen in the city differently and how we want to include longtime black residents, working class residents generally. And then we do some collective strategizing. It always has a political education and political action component. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about some of what we did today and how, what you feel like came out of it? Mm -hmm. So the goals for the Freedom School today was that we wanted members to understand, members and residents to understand what the structural reasons are that lead to landlord neglect and displacement by force. And we wanted to explain how the politics of neighborhood change is a racialized project and deeply rooted in racial capitalism. To follow 1DC actions such as their upcoming People's Assembly, visit them at 1DConline.org. From Southeast DC, this is Chantal James. In climate news, scientists researching the Arctic underwater permafrost announced this week discovery of a 50-foot square area of formerly frozen ocean floor now boiling with bursts of methane. The discovery was announced Monday in a statement from Russia's Tomsk Polytechnic University and lead researcher Igor Similitov. The findings from the expedition and Similitov's remarks were translated and reported on Tuesday by the Telegraph of London and picked up by Newsweek eliciting comments of alarm by climate scientists all over the world, including Jim Walsh, energy policy analyst at Food and Water Watch. Welcome to On the Ground, Jim. Well, thank you for having me. So a lot of people don't really understand the significance of the methane, even though they may understand the significance of formerly frozen ground or underwater ground now uh, boiling. Sure. So... The melting sea ice and permafrost and the ensuing methane leaks are really a loud warning bell telling us to get off fossil fuels right away. And so warming temperatures are causing a loss in permafrost and sea ice melt. And this is 
in turn causing release of methane and carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which are very uh, potent greenhouse gases. And the most recent IPPC report on oceans and cryospheres tell us that depending on continued emissions, anywhere between 8% and 89% of permafrost is expected to thaw. I'm sorry, did you say between 8 and 89%? Yes, 8 and 89%. Mm. And there's a lot of uncertainty about how much melting will happen. And the amount of melting that will happen is really a, a product of the amount of emissions that we continue to release in the atmosphere. And really, this is something that should concern all of us since melting permafrost has the potential to release literally tens to hundreds of billions of tons of greenhouse gases in the form of CO2 and methane in the atmosphere by the end of the century. And to put this in perspective, these emissions will dwarf global greenhouse gas emissions from humans, which were 37 billion tons last year. And at some point, we could reach a place where warming from these emissions um, will cause what scientists are calling a climate feedback loop or a climate tipping point. And this is a point where emissions create more warming, which melts more permafrost, which releases more emissions, leading to more warming and so on. And right. the, the higher the levels of greenhouse gas emissions that humans release in the atmosphere, the greater our chance of going over one of these tipping points and really causing irreversible and unpredictable changes to our climate. And, you know, every new fossil fuel project that and delay in transition into clean energy really brings us a step closer to reaching these climate tipping points where it may become literally impossible to stop the planet from warming out of control. Right. I know that Food and Water Watch is one of the organizations, you know, actively working to stop these projects. But but what what is the political landscape like here in the U.S. for for stopping them? Sure. We're seeing changes happen for sure. You know, Governor Murphy from New Jersey just announced his opposition to a gas fired power plant in the Meadowlands that would release tremendous amounts of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere where if it were allowed to go through and that project is being scrapped now. You've also seen Governor Murphy and Governor Cuomo from New York reject pipeline applications that would have created new markets for gas that's been fracked in Pennsylvania and Ohio and the Marcellus Shale formations. We're also seeing growing grassroots opposition to the development of fossil fuels. We just saw one of the largest global actions with the climate strikes just a couple of weeks ago, where youth and other climate justice activists have been standing up and demanding real pathways to ending our use of fossil fuels, keeping fossil fuels on the ground and transitioning to a just and equitable green energy future. Is there any type of index or one place that people can go to and say, well, I want to find out about some pending fossil fuel projects in my area? Is there a recommended place that people can always check to see what's happening locally? Sure. So Food and Water Action is mobilizing campaigns all over the United States and actually in Europe, too, to push back against fossil fuel projects. And so we are actively organizing on these campaigns. They can go to our website. There are places there where they can actually connect to, to organizers in their communities to help support uh, efforts to stop these campaigns. 
And we also have distributed organizing campaigns where if there isn't a fossil fuel project in your neighborhood and community that you're fighting, where you can actually sign up to make phone calls to people in communities that are fighting these sorts of projects to build grassroots support elsewhere in strategic areas to push back on these fossil fuel campaigns. Okay, well, and that's foodandwateraction.org is where folks can go and find out what's happening locally and and take action. So I've been speaking with Jim Walsh, Energy Policy Analyst at Food and Water Watch. Thank you, Jim. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks for covering this important issue. And other recent signs of permafrost erosion and melting, homes have sunk and collapsed, rivers have overflooded their banks, and entire communities have been washed away. Food and Water Watch also released news this week calling on presidential candidates to join Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren in opposing the privatization of water and opposing the plan of PG&E of California to cut electricity to more than one million people to avoid poorly maintained electrical wires causing wildfires this year. And that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. And before I sign off, I want to send solidarity and love to my fellow programmers at WBAI in New York City. Here's to your voices, local New York voices, radical voices of truth back on the air real soon. Solidarity with BAI. The music we played this hour included War by Edwin Starr, remixed by Dr. Spider, Terrorist by Low Key, A Child is Born by Jerry Allen, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. You can find out how to contact us, support us, work with us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, like us on Facebook or Twitter under on the ground show and we are on itunes and google play under wpfw on the ground thanks to our patreon community for your support and encouragement i'm esther Ivarum. until next time keep raising your voice peace
Ha ha ha.